Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I'm here with, as always, Don Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome. All right, and we've got a really, really wonderful guest, so just give a very brief introduction. Uh, our guest is Jack Weatherford, Professor Jack Weatherford, who is author of many books, but we're principally going to be talking today about his book, The Secret History of the Mongol Queens. He's written extensively on Genghis Khan, History of Money, uh, books on Native American history, and uh, just we're really excited because this story of these women uh, is something that we really would like more people to know. So everybody, please welcome Jack Weatherford. Hi, Jack. Oh, good morning or good evening. Here it's morning and there evening. It's a pleasure to be with yes, you. Yes, yeah. You're speaking to us from the other side of the globe. That's right. Yes. Where are you now? You're in Cambodia. I am in Cambodia. I've been here for 19 months waiting to return to Mongolia. I was out when the country closed, and um, I hope to be back soon. But Cambodia is a wonderful and beautiful country to wait in. That's and wonderful. I, you're going to be heading back to Mongolia, correct? Yes, my home is Mongolia. I live in Mongolia, yes. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Well, we have many questions about that. I have so many questions. I'll have to control my uh, my excitement so we can, we can go through this more easily. <laughs> and, uh, you mentioned it briefly, uh, Sean, but I just want to go ahead and put a, an honest-to-goodness plug um, for The Secret History of the Mongol Queen's Jack's book. I am, as you know, a lover of Amazons and women warriors and um, of telling the stories of overlooked women in history. This, this book is just a fantastic treasure trove. Of um, of stories about women that were that were literally cut out of history. Um, so if you have, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are your interests align, and I would strongly suggest getting a copy of this book. You'll find it a really delightful read. Well, that is that's a a great place to start. Actually, let's do this. Let's um, uh, what I'd like to do is Jack have tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this history and then we can talk about what don just alluded to which is how this this history of these women had been lost how it was recovered what how how you got your way into it so just maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your background well i'm an american citizen from south carolina darlington uh, county south carolina and uh I, how i ended up living in mongolia and i've been there now since 1998, so it's been uh, some time. Uh, it's hard to explain, you know, it's like, how did you fall in love with the person you fell in love with? How did I fall in love with Mongolia and Mongolia? Wow, history? well put. And, mm -hmm. and I can't say exactly, but I remember the first time I went to Mongolia, I had been interested as a kid, of course, in, in Genghis Khan, you know, and Alexander the Great, and this kind of stuff that, that young boys are interested in. And I always wanted to go to Mongolia, 
but it was closed and I had I'd written a few times as a student to see if it's possible to study and it was not at that time. And then it opened. Socialism fell in 1990 and um, things changed and I had the opportunity to go. And I thought it was just uh, like visiting a childhood memory. It's like, okay, I get to go see what I wanted to see. But I fell in love with the country. I really did, just right away. The first morning watching the sun come up, I was already out on the step, out of the way from the city when the sun came up. And just to see that emerald green grass growing and just the beauty of the open space when you could go in any direction you wanted, there's no road that limited you this way or that way, no sign, no fence, nothing. It's like being on an ocean of grass. And I was just totally disoriented, but also obsessed. And it just kind of grew from there. I, I kept sort of feeding the fantasy and say, okay, okay, you can come for a month, come for three months. It's okay. You know, okay, try a year. And I just can't quite break it. Wonderful. I, I I know in reading your book, uh, when I first read the Genghis Khan and Making of the Modern World, that got me fascinated by about that country, just the vastness and beauty of the steppe. And so much of what we discuss on this program comes back to that, that Eurasian steppe, that vast area where all these different tribes and uh, mobile tribes crossed and encountered each other and different cultures intermingled. So when I read your book, I was just just spellbound by just what it seemed like. Uh, what is one of the things that I was curious about now is how how is the country like now? Just out of curiosity, what is the what is Mongolia like now? Is it a is it a modern society? Is it an open society? Just what is the what's the experience of living there like? Well, Mongolia is a democracy in a rather tough mm-hmm. neighborhood. And okay. that's, I think, a great thing to its credit, because even though it's a very large country in space, it's very small with 3 million or perhaps 3.2 million people living there. And about 40 percent now live in the capital city. So if you could imagine Ulaanbaatar, the capital city, especially the downtown area, it has everything. You know, it has uh, a Wi-Fi and all the modern conveniences and cafes and uh, lettuce in the grocery stores and all this kind of things that you would find in almost any city. But surrounding it are what they call the Gare District. About uh, a million people live surrounding the downtown. And they live largely in gears or in small wooden houses that they built. And they live without running water and without central heat. They do have electricity. And, of course, they can use cell phones if they can afford those. So it's it's quite a difficult life for many people. And yet you do have all the modern conveniences close at hand for those who can afford it. Once you leave the city, life is both very traditional and yet a little different. I mean, you can go out today into the countryside. People are still living in the same felt gears, made the same way, exactly the same. But they have a, a solar panel out there and it helps to give them a a television or they have the cell phone and in in addition to herding the animals by horse and by camel they're also using the motorbike and 
that sometimes when they change camp from one area to another, they move everything on a truck rather than. So there are some changes, and yet it's still the same basic lifestyle. But Interesting. Think, yeah, and that nomadic way of life is still the basic life of Mongolia in a way that almost no other country has today. Just taking that as a maybe a starting point to give our setting for these the stories of these women, can we talk about uh, Mongolia and the age of Genghis Khan and a little bit about him, his background, what the culture that he was born into and the culture that he sort of brought about, just so we have some context when we start talking about uh, the Mongol queens. Yes, you know, it, it took me a while to get interested in the Mongol queens that wasn't what I was uh, there for. I was interested in this great conqueror and his story. So that's how I got started with it. And uh, what I was very surprised about was what a simple background he came from. Even in this isolated uh, nomadic society, his family was quite destitute. Uh, His father died when he was very young. His mother, who had actually been kidnapped, she was a kidnapped wife, uh, she I was cast out of the tribe or the clan at the time of his death, and she had four children. And uh, it was almost certainly a, a sense of a sentence of death for them to be cast out onto the steppe. And what animals they had were taken away from them by the relatives of Chinggis Khan's own father. His own male relatives took them away. And so here is this woman that's called Mother Erlun, and Mongolian history. Mother Erlun, in the words of the secret history, I'm always so so moved by these words that she she pulled her hat down on her head, she tied her skirt up in a knot, she took her black stick and she ran up and down the banks of the river, digging out roots to feed the gullet of her brood. And she kept those children alive. So that was the kind of the first hint that, okay, it's more than just a story of conquests coming up here. This is a guy who had a very unusual life out there. Talk about a single mom raising yeah, somebody. Yeah. I mean, these were very incredible circumstances. And uh, he grew up largely, you could say, without a male influence, which was very interesting. He had younger uh-huh. brothers. Mm-hmm. But it was his mother, and then it uh his, his late father had had another wife who lived with him at some time. And then at some point, there was an elderly lady. They just called her Granny, Granny Kwakchun. I don't know where she came from, but she lived with him for a while. So he lived in this uh, family of females in a basically society that was very oriented towards male activities. And he had to both become a man at a very young age, eight years old or so, to be the male in the family, but he was also greatly influenced by these women. And at first, I wasn't completely captured by that story. That was just very interesting to me, but I still wanted to get on to the conquest. You know, that was where my right. mind was. And so I just kept kept researching and following his life and following his life. But the more I followed it, even through outside of Mongolia as I went into Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, to all these places, then I began to see more and more. It's really the childhood experiences that he had that shaped him. And I didn't quite know how to deal with that. 
You know, I couldn't say, oh, yeah, he had a father who taught him to fight, who taught him this, who taught yeah, him that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah he, 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 had a, he had a whole life. I mean, Sean and I were talking about this earlier today. He had a whole life before he reached that point in his life where the conquests really started to roll and it was all, you know, it was all uh, uh, just expansion from that point. It was, he was in his, was it mid thirties when he hit that low point and he had nothing left, but, you know, a few faithful uh, friends and they were at a lake and they were basically, they, they'd killed their last and eaten their last horse. And it was, it was only by sheer chance that they met the trader on the white camel and uh, and his fortunes from that point really turned around. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, that, was, that was the pivotal yeah. point in his career, the conquest right. career, yes. And it was called yeah. a place called Baljuna. Uh, and it was very important in shaping his, his conquest. It was sort of a decision, do you go forward or not? And they decided to continue fighting. And uh, they went forward and from then on, he was fairly much successful after that point. But it, the exact age is not given, but I think you're probably right. It was about in his 30s. But uh, he did not really start his world conquest outside of Mongolia until 50. Uh, it took quite a long Amazing. time for him to unite the Mongolian people. And then right. conquering the rest of the world was kind of easy. Once he conquered the one million Mongols, then he could go out <laughs> and conquer the rest. Well, so as they say, um, it's never too late. It's never too late. Exactly, gives us gives us a, a little inspiration for those of us in our in our fifties. Um, uh, uh, just, I'm sorry. I just want to ask a couple of questions just off of this, um, just about the male led culture and why his mother had been. You you read my mind, Sean. Oh, thank you. Gonna, Look at us. We, great minds think alike. Okay. Exactly. I was going to circle back and say, tell us more about this tradition of kidnapping brides, and then. You know, subsequently, when the husband of the kidnapped bride dies, the clan turning that woman out of their society. Tell us a little bit more about that. And was that sort of universally Mongolian culture or were the traditions different in the different tribes and clans? The kidnapping of women was quite common at this time. Uh, the, the preferred way or the, the way that a young man was supposed to do it was his family would make arrangements with another family for marriage. And then the boy would be taken to that family and he would live with the girl's family for some years serving them until they thought he was worthy and the, the girl accepted him. And she would usually be a little bit older. And exactly that's ex exactly what happened with Chinggis Han at age eight, uh, his father took him off to another family to start serving. But for his mother, it did not happen that way. His mother was uh, Erlun, and she was married to another man from another tribe called the Merkit tribe. And then they were, uh, her new husband uh, had served the time uh, with her family, and then he was ready to take her back to his tribe. And so, in this case, the father of Chinggis Han, named Yusuke Batr, Yusuke Batr was out hunting one day with his falcon, and he saw a cart coming across the steppe. 
Now, in Mongolia, only women owned carts. All carts belonged to women. So he knew there was a woman in the cart. And then mm. there was a rider nearby who was her husband. And so Yasuke Pati went back, got his brothers. They came and they attacked. And they wanted to kidnap her. And Mother Erlun, she saw that there were four of them. This is a young girl. I shouldn't even call her mother at this point because she's probably 17 years old or something. Very young girl. And she's been with this young man. We don't know how long he'd been living with her family, uh, maybe three, four, five years. So she's attached to him. But she was also very smart. She knew they would kill him. And that's what she told her husband. Uh, She said, they will kill you. You must flee. They will take me, but you must flee. And at first he was resistant. He said, no, no, no. And she took off her shirt, which in, in Mongolian, it's, uh, it carries your smell. It's your, it's your essence. It's your somehow like a soul, a part of your spirit. And she thrust it into his face. And she said, take the smell of me and you go and you find a life and another wife. Mm. It was a, and he rode away as those men were coming to attack. But, but the Mongolian men have these long pigtails at the time. And, and the secret history said those pigtails, they kept flapping back and forth, back and forth to his face. and his. You can see he's turning his head back and forth, what to do, mm. what to do. But he goes on. And she's silent until he's out of view. And once he's out of view and he cannot see her anymore or hear her, she wails loudly out of emotional pain. And mm. her, captors, her captors say to her, it doesn't matter how much you scream and how much the mountains shake or how much the waters tremble, you will never see him again. And they were right. They took her away. And she never saw him again. And she had a new husband. She had the four children. The first one was Temujin, Chinggis Han. Tebujin, right. born, born while the father, Yesuke, was out on battle against the Tatar people. He was away. And then when Chinggis uh, Han, as I mentioned before, Tebujin was uh, eight years old, approximately. He was taken off by his father to find a wife. And he found this family with this young girl in there, or named Bertha. And the two of them, it says, had a fire in their eyes and fire in their cheeks. And the two fathers seemed to like each other, the two children. And so Temujin was left there with her. But on his way back home, he was poisoned. And then he was dying. And the, the family of Mother Erlun sent for him, to, for Temujin, to return to them. And they actually stayed on after the death of Yasuke, they stayed on through that first winter. But by the time spring comes, the tribe is ready to move. And then the old, the two old widows of a former Khan, they held the ceremony to move in the spring. And it was to honor the ancestors before they moved off. And when they held the ceremony, they did not invite Bertha. And then she came and she was indignant that she wasn't invited. But they said, you know, you're the one for whom the law says we do not have to invite. We do not have to ask you. And then the two old women said, we will move on and leave these women and their children here. And they did. 
My mother earlier hmm. grabbed the flag of her husband, the horsehair banner, and she mounted a horse and she ran out in circles around the group. And they were so shamed that they stopped moving, but they waited until night and she wasn't there. And then they moved off during the night. So Mother Erlun was left there with her children and nothing to support them. So knowing, you know, what you do about culture, the Mongol culture at this time, was this a, do you think this was a power play or do you think this was a personality issue? Like, why did they choose to cast her out of the clan? Yes, uh, it's a complicated set of cultural issues. You're you're, you're absolutely in the right area with that question. But it's a couple things. One is because it wasn't a legitimate marriage made through negotiation, that's why the old women said, you're the one for whom the law says we don't have to call because she was a kidnapped bride. Well, now under the tradition of this time, the men of uh, the dead husband they, one of them should step forward to marry her. The men of the clan of the deceased husband should marry her, the brother usually, but it could be anyone, including even right. a stepson or a stepfather or any, anyone in the clan. But they did not, even though those brothers had participated in her kidnapping. Right, yeah. Yeah, they did not step forward. So they were violating their own culture rules. But I think the reason was out of the question of food. Springtime is the time, Mm. you know, there's no grass hardly. The animals are very weak. Many have died during the winter. Many have been eaten. Uh, There's no milk coming yet. It's an extremely difficult time. And I think that you had here, you had two wives, uh, Mother Erlu, she had four children. And then uh, the other one, uh, she had uh, two sons. So here are six children and two women. None of the six children were old enough to really work. Chinggis Han was mm. still under nine years old. And we don't know about the other one. He could have been 10 or 11 at that point, the older from the other one. So here it, it is a big expense for them, but it's also a very cruel act. First violate yeah. your culture, you don't marry her, and then you take the animals away and you leave them right. there to die. So it sure. may have been it may have been a uh, a sort of you know it's it's for the good of the whole tribe because it was a matter of conserving food, but in doing so they you know they made the decision to to be extremely cruel to this this family unit. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Jack, I'm wondering too about just the nature, just just to get an understanding too about the role of women. So when these marriages are made, the idea of bringing the young boy over to the to the new family and having the the bride be slightly older, what is the what is the uh, cultural meaning or the cultural power action of having the boy serve the family? Is that what does it say about the the idea of marriage in terms of husband and wife, or does it say anything really? And second, why is the bride a little bit older? Typically we're used to seeing brides being a little bit younger in terms of the idea of childbirth or things of that sort. In truth, I cannot answer that of why is the wife a little bit older? It's just, that's been a a sort of a tradition. Uh, Some people, they, they give 
different reasons uh, sometimes that uh, often today, for example, if we try to compare that in the countryside, the young women, they are more likely to go to the city, to the university. They far outnumber the boys who go. The boys stay there to herd because that's the boy's job. And then the girls don't return. So boys in the countryside today have a great difficulty finding brides. And they often then marry older women or divorced women or widowed women. It's just quite common. So I think something like that could have been happening long ago, that uh, there was some part of it, that the, uh, the, the scarcity of wives for some of the, the guys on the step led them both to either kidnapping or to going to these other marriages. But it was just considered correct or right or preferable that the girl lead the boy a little bit. Now, she's a little bit older. She's a little bit more knowledgeable. And see, when they when they have their own home, it's going to be her home. The gear always belongs to the woman. The tent or gear, it belongs to the woman. The cart belongs to the woman. That's just how it is. And so if he goes to live with her family and her gear and her family, then he learns how to live in her world. Because even with Chinggis Han, he never owned his own gear in his whole life. Uh, he always depended on that of his wife. So starting very young, he was beginning to live with his uh, future wife, Bertha, but he did not last because uh, of the death of his father. However, she came to him later. She came to him about 16, when he was about 16, she was 17, and they did marry. Aww. She never forgot him. That's beautiful. It's even even in this, you know, even in these ancient times, love can move mountains. Are are there other? Um, is this so? When in reading both the, the the making of the modern world and the Mongol queens, there you talk a lot about the confederation of tribes. Is it's is this specific just to uh, Mongolian tribes or some of the? Turkic tribes. I mean, the, in the region, is this kind of the similar? No matter what the tribes were like, these kind of relations between men and women oh, in terms of marriage. Something happened to the sound. I'm so sorry. I I can barely hear anything now. Hold on, just a second. I'll see if I can. I can't really pause, but I'll just put to do a quick it note. Could to be something there my end, or there you go. Can you hear me, Jack? Oh yes, I hear you. Okay. Okay. I wonder uh, if we just had a little ripple in the force there. Okay. So uh, what I what I had asked was, um, what, does this is does this hold true for the other tribes in the area? I mean, what besides the Mongols in the region where uh, Genghis uh, grew up? What other tribes are around, and were there sort of male female relations in marriage similar? You know, is it just a step issue? Was it that a, a step culture, or was that uh, specifically a Mongolian? Uh, kind of culture or a nomadic culture a, nomadic a culture, facet sure. of nomadic culture yeah yeah i'm not sure if i understood the question exactly correctly but i oh uh, like what, what i mean was it was this specific to mongols or were this was this yeah. also true of other groups that were on the uh, steps the other nomadic tribes that were uh part of their world 
I think a lot of these issues were more specific to the steppe nomads, because if you compare it to, uh, for example, Middle Eastern nomads, especially with, with say, the, the Arab world, you know, it's quite, quite different. Uh, mm. Their whole their culture is quite different, even though they're nomadic people. So these right. are the Mongol traditions are, are inherited already from thousands of years of other groups there, the who were there before, the Huns, the other Turkic groups, the Uyghurs, for example. All of these groups were there before, and this is a part of the steppe culture that I think is different from nomadic culture in general. Interesting. Okay. The the thing that uh, Sean and I are kind of chasing down here, Jack, is um, is we've done a lot of uh, we've we've done a lot of podcasts and um, spoken with a lot of people that looked at um, the Paleolithic cultures in the area around the Black Sea and um, and their sort of matriarchal structures and the idea that they were matrilocal. So the idea of the husband coming to the home of the bride feels like it almost might be um, a holdover from those matrilocal civilizations, yes. whereas yeah. the kidnapping of the brides feels like um, the tradition of the Indo-Europeans that sort of clashed with those old Europe matrilocal civilizations. So it, when we hear these two different traditions of, you know, of, of how a bride and, and how marriages occur, it, it, it almost looks like these two traditions are now existing sort of simultaneously in the culture um, because they come from these these different backgrounds. So that's sort of our questions to you, I think, are trying to sort of figure out, um, tease out those origins if possible. Yeah, it's exactly, exactly right because it does sound, for us, for the stuff that we've been hearing and now obviously the stuff around the Black Seats a little bit further, south and west but it's it's they're still out on the steps uh and it just was just curious as to whether you know what like Don was saying whether this is a you know this could be remnants of different cultural um constructs or just kind of what what the real history of it was and it sounds like just from what you were saying that the step culture was distinct in the, at least in this matter I think if we think about the step first as a, as a physical entity, it's like this giant highway from East Asia all the way over to actually as far as, as Hungary. It's just uh, mostly step after step after step. And there are a few mountains along the way. However, the mountains are, are easily passed. And so cultures for thousands of years have been moving back and forth across that step. I think right. the fact that a thousand years before Chinggis Han, we had the Huns, and the Huns originally came mm. out of Mongolia, and yet there they ended right. up in Hungary, which was named after them, and right. attacking the, the, the Roman Empire in Europe. So there's movement back and forth throughout the history. And to, to really specify exactly with each group, I mean, with a... Every, every trait exactly where it came from is a little bit difficult. However, mm -hmm. I think that this, there's a certain uh, part of this 
matrifocal interest, this interest in, in women and their, their property and their rights and all throughout the steppe because the men had to move much more often than the women, especially if they were going out to raid or to conquer or even just to hunt. And so women were very much responsible for the home front. So the animals right. that are at home, the taking care of the home front, the owning of the home, the transportation around, all of these issues would be in the hands of women sometimes for extended periods of time especially right. uh, by the time we get to Chinggis Khan and the Mongols for years at a time when he would go off to war. And, right. But this was already a, an ancient tradition, and it was just amplified, I think, during the time of the Mongols. Fascinating. Jack, one other thing I'm curious about, too, just staying on this topic and, and again, tying into the, the, the usual areas that we kind of explore, in terms of polygamy or monogamy in these cultures were these cultures would you describe these cultures as primarily monogamous were they polygamous were they polygynous possibly or polyandrous meaning you know in some cases you, you hear of multiple husbands in some cases you have multiple brides in different regions and areas what were the mongols like and what have you seen in the steppe tribes around them in terms of the actual marriage rules and behavior well, it's interesting you say marriage rules and behavior because there's been so many places. <laughs> yes. the marriage rules are one thing and behavior. <laughs> behavior is another. Exactly. another. Exactly. <laughs> yes. so, so true. I would say the marriage rule uh, was generally uh, towards monogamy of one man, one woman. However, with the higher-ranking people, such as the cons, the chiefs, the higher-ranking, uh, polygamy was... Uh, Common. It wasn't necessarily uh, universal, but it was quite common. However, the the lifestyle didn't support these large numbers of what we would call in the West people called harems and things like that, where you have a bunch of more or less uh, captive women staying. Uh, inside some palace or something. These are people living on the steppe. And when each woman has her own gear and she's the master of that gear, always, without exception, then it's going to limit the number of wives that even men at the very top can have. So mm -hmm. in the case of Chinggis Khan, he ended up with four wives. The main wife always, Berta, the, the first woman that he met as a child when he was eight, uh, throughout his life, uh, she was his main wife. But then at one uh, point, he took another wife who was the daughter of a Tatar Khan, uh, Khan and uh, she asked him to please take her older sister, although her sister was married to someone else. And they didn't know where the sister was, so they had to send out and find the older sister. And Chinggis Khan said, why would you give up being a higher rank than your sister. If she comes here, she'll be higher rank because she's older than you. And she said, well, it's because my sister's smarter than I am and she will be a better queen. And she was right. Her sister was smarter. And so he married those two. And uh, he, he did sometimes marry women out of political alliance, but it he did not live with them, and it was uh, much more of a format. So he just had four wives through his life. Each one served a very different uh, sort of role with him because since uh, they owned the gear, 
one wife had to travel with him at all times. And so one would go off to war while the other stayed back in their own territory. Each had her own territory managing that. So it's a very complicated system of rules. Now, if you look at the behavior, it's very difficult to look at the behavior because as Chinggis Han said, you know, what happens in the gear is a matter for the gear. What happens on the step is a matter for people on the step. And so life inside the gear was quite private. Uh, People had a great deal of flexibility. and There were no set of rules of how they had to act and behave within their personal life like that. It wasn't discussed very much. So uh, Chinggis Han, I think he had very good relations with all four of his wives. And in this regard, he was very fortunate. But most men had one wife. Interesting. Okay. 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 And and you know you you mention in your book quite a bit about the alliances that came about through marriages. So it seemed like um, the multiple wives was sometimes an opportunity for more alliances to be made, and that it was very much a political alliance rather than you know, a harem style situation where like, I want to have all these women around me, you know, at my beck and call. It was more that I want a connection with this other tribe that I can count on in the future of my empire. And so I'm going to arrange a marriage. I agree with that completely. These were mostly political marriages. And uh, one thing that's very interesting is a counterpart to that, uh, Usually when Chinggis Han conquered a group, he would at least for a while nominally take a high-ranking woman as a wife. But he also always adopted a boy. And people ignore that part. It just doesn't seem to fit. So adopting an orphan and marrying a woman, it was a way of incorporating that group. And then the fact that uh, he would often give the or in fact, almost every case, I think, give the boy then to his mother to actually raise. He didn't raise the boy himself, although the boy stayed very loyal to him and they became family forever. But his mother did the actual raising. And then in some cases, when he accepted a bride, uh, she then went off in her own life. I mean, one case was the the sister of the mother of, of, of Kublai Khan, uh, that he had married her. And then when he, he seemed to like her a lot because when he had to, Ibaka was her name, when he had to separate from her, he made a big speech to the public and he said, I have to separate because that is the law and that's the way it is. But it's not because this woman did anything wrong or because I don't love her and respect her. And she goes and she takes all her property with her and she keeps her name of queen forever. No one can take anything from her because she never did anything wrong. It was only her father who did. So it was quite mm. a quite nice. a political marriage. Yes, yeah. And he allowed her to save face, essentially, even though the the politics demanded that their political marriage be dissolved. Yeah. Yes, and what? I suspect I mean, they never really had a, a personal, intimate marriage anyway. But but who right. knows? What happens in the mm-hmm. gear stays in the gear. Stays and what in, the, in gear. the gear. <laughs> <laughs> well, well just, just following up on that, because in, as we, again, expand towards the queens, what 
when you describe that, what I hear is a man in terms of Genghis Khan who has an empathy or compassion for women, a connection to women. I pick that up in reading your book on making of the modern world. Can you just let's start to maybe talk about what Genghis's view of women was and how that actually played out in his realm. And then we can start to talk about these these really extraordinary women that, you know, came to fore uh, in his empire. Yes, I think if we remember how few people there were, uh, even when he had conquered all the Mongols, he probably had a little less than one million people, of whom about 100,000 would be warriors, males of an age able to go out and fight. So it's a society where you you don't have any people to waste. You you can't have idle people. Everyone has to have a role. And he uh, used the, the patterns of the past, but he also improvised somewhat because he was having uh, more success conquering more people than anyone had done in the past. And so the system that he sort of came up with uh, was, of course, he married his sons primarily to the daughters of, of defeated khans or defeated kings in the area. That was a common way. And one reason for selecting those daughters was because often they were better educated. And he was quite conscious of that. And he uh, wanted a well-educated wife for each of his sons. For his daughters, it was a much different policy. He then made marriages with them with with the sons or with the khans who had surrendered voluntarily to him and had joined him voluntarily. Now, there are two ways to look at that. And at, at first, I looked at some of the English adaptations of the, the secret history, and they would often say that he gave his daughter to the, the khan of the Ongut people, for example, in marriage. Well, that is not what he said, that is not what he did. He gave those people to her. He ah. gave the people to her, and he made a speech in every case. We don't know the speeches he made when his sons married, but we know with his daughters. And he tells him, I give these people to you to rule, and I give them to you, and your first, your first husband is your honor and your name. It was very clear. And then the husband had to go with Genghis Khan to war. So there's no question who was going to be ruling. Now, unfortunately, of course, uh, the daughters often lost that husband. And so some of them went through even four husbands in her lifetime because uh, that one would be lost in war. But it was quite an interesting system in which the daughters were left to rule these countries, especially along the Silk Route. That was the main area because this was already conquered, pacified, and then they were therefore in in charge of the commerce and running those countries. So so his treatment of women in this sense, the daughters, the daughters getting, the kingdom is given to them. Is this to be looked at as an extension of just the way in his own culture, the, the girt, the home, that's the province of women. And so he he puts that into a political contract, more or less. I mean, in the sense of so it's sort uh, of again, like the cultural tradition writ large. Right. right yes, I think empire. that's it. Writ large, because uh, traditionally she would be ruling her 
I, I should say ruling, but controlling her own gear and the territory mm-hmm. right around that gear. She would be controlling that. And, and uh, now we've just done this in a much larger way. So that was his improv- improvisation was mm-hmm. to make her in charge of these countries. Did that, uh, in terms of Mongolian culture, to have women have that kind of power, that kind of autonomy uh, at his behest, is there anything in terms of what, in terms of what you've found in your research, your studies, did that change the kind of improve the relations of women and culture, or change the way that it was viewed in, in Mongolian culture going forward, or just at least even at that time, in terms of the perception of what a woman could do or how a woman should be treated? Actually, in terms of Mongolian culture, I don't think there was very much change. It was writ large, as Don said, but not a huge change. But the problem was these are are, are, are cultures that are not Mongol. They're on the edge. They're mostly Turkic people. And so, for example, in, in one of the first marriages, his daughter, Alkai Bek, uh, she was married to the leader of the Ongut people, which is in northern China, in, in Inner Mongolia today. Ongut obviously don't exist as a, as a nation anymore, but they were at that time and they had cities. And these were quite different people. Most of the Ongut were actually Christian people. So they lived by much different laws. And uh, at first, they revolted against her. They did not want her because their Khan was taken away, you know, and and she was put in, in power. And that was contrary to everything they thought. And so they revolted and they actually killed her husband. Well, Chinggis Khan at this time, the procedure normally would be he would come in and just decimate the people for having revolted like that. But Alakaibek spoke up and she'd ask her father. She said, only kill the people who, who killed my husband. Only kill the ones who led the revolt. Don't harm the other people. Uh, and he, he abided by her words. And so he agreed to that. And then she did acquire some respect, I think, among the people. But still, yeah, she was saving their lives. Yeah. yeah was the revolt about, them. sorry, no, I was going to say, was the revolt about just the fact that they had installed someone other than their king? Or was there part of it about the fact that they had installed a woman in charge of their, uh, or did it have nothing to do with it? It just was simply about here was this external. Uh, entity, this, this ruler being placed and their regular ruler being replaced? I can't really answer that. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. to know what they were struggling with and against. It seemed uh, there was a huge faction who, that did not support joining the Mongols. So mm-hmm. if I had to emphasize something, I would probably in that case emphasize more the political part or diplomatic, and the political. cultural, mm-hmm. yes. Then, then yeah. the fact that she was a woman. I mean, I think if, if they he had sent his son to rule, it probably would have also been uh, alienated many of the people. So I think okay. that it, it's a hard one to tease out all the factors there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But she, uh, you know, she. I think I think she did something very politically savvy there in saying, you know, don't kill all the people because then she almost endeared herself to the people as being on their side rather than, you know, this this Mongol invader who was going to kill everyone and, and lay waste to the culture. So 
very politically savvy and uh, very smart of yes. of Genghis Khan Beck. too. Uh, she's one of my she's one of my favorites. <laughs> she's the of yeah. Genghis Khan's children. She's the only one we know for sure who could read and write because being along the border of China, then they had a number of Chinese envoys come up from the Song dynasty in the south. And they were they were quite amazed that this woman could read and write and that she was the ruler of the country. And she also was the supreme judge that she occupied that position. And they said that she was always reading and writing. And I only wish they would have told us what language was she reading and writing? Was it the Mongolian yeah. language, or, or and and exactly what was it that she was reading and writing, or just some hint? Right. Was it? I assume it was legal since she was in charge. Uh, she took charge of the legal system. And one of the things, for example, there would be no no capital punishment without her permission. And I don't know that she ever gave her permission, but all capital cases had to be referred to her. So she was quite a just ruler. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And, and such a shame that her, yeah, that her writings don't survive so that we could know what she was saying in her own words. Before we yes, go into now, sometimes, more about some of the other, sorry. Go ahead. Sometimes. No, no, sorry, Jack, go ahead, please. I think yeah. there's a, sometimes there's some, there's going to be some evidence of something. And I look often at some of the older records looking for her voice. And I think one day it's going to show up. One day. Nice, nice. Uh, I can't wait for that day. Well, just in terms <laughs> of these, these kind of lost, these lost voices and, and talking more about the daughters, can we talk about how, what the secret history is? What, it was, what, was, lo- what was it? How was it lost? How did you encounter it because uh, as Don alluded to in the beginning of this idea of this this whole history being erased in some sense of what these women were like so uh, I, it's funny we've we've come we've, we've gone into so many different places but maybe that that initial starting point for you was this idea of this secret history of the Mongol Queen so uh, let's hear a little bit about that and so, so the listener understands the context in which you kind of stumbled across this. Yes, if I can, I can give some background before we get to that section two fifteen that sort of changed my orientation. This thing, the the, the secret history, uh, Chinggis Khan, he proclaimed his nation. He created the Mongol nation and named it in twelve o six. However, in twelve o four, he had ordained that they would have a written language, and it was borrowed from the Uyghur people, and so they took the Uyghur alphabet and the Uyghur. Uh, uh, clerks came over to help them adapt it into Mongolian. He also ordered his uh, children to learn to read and write, but as I say, we only know about the one. However, one of those adopted boys, whether you call him the adopted son or adopted brother, his name was Chiki Hutuk, but he was from the Tatar people, the same people from which he had the two wives, uh, Yesu and Yesugen. And so Chiki Hutuk did know how to read and write, and he became the supreme judge of the Mongols, the same way that Alakai Bek was the supreme judge of the Ongut people. He was the supreme judge. But Chinggis Khan only allowed writing to be used 
for legal purposes, recording the law and recording the decisions. He did not allow it for military purposes. The military operated, everything was oral. And so in order to operate, they had to have this sort of system of, we might call it like limericks or or, or this pattern of, of lyrics that people could uh, learn and easily memorize long sets of rules and long sets of messages. However, all legal things were being written down. And Chinggis Khan allowed nothing to be written about himself or his life. And he allowed no pictures to be made, no sculptures, nothing. But when he died, then almost as soon as he died, they began to write it down. And I believe it was Shigi Hutuk. It's never quite clear because it is it was a secret document for a long time. But someone, and I will say Shigi Hutuk, began to write down the myths of the people and also the history, all, everything that they could about him, not really about the conquests. That wasn't very important to them, but it was the other things that were there in the, in the life of Chinggis Khan and in his family. But it was kept history because it was a family story. And it's like, you know, when we get together at the holidays and we have all our family stories and we're laughing at one another and we're telling all the, the bad parts. And the secret history is, is much like that. So you see in there, uh, when Chinggis Khan's father died, for example, he was just that young boy of, of eight years old or possibly nine by then, but probably eight. And uh, he was crying while his mother was out there riding the horse around trying to defend the people. And there were several times in life where he was afraid of his mother much later in life when she would argue with him or when he would uh, have his wife Bertha change his opinion. These are not the kind of things that you usually put in a document where you're glorifying a king. You don't talk about how afraid he was when his mother started screaming at him. You know, and so the secret history was kept secret, and for a long time it was thought not to exist because it was written down in a coded form. But it was finally begun to be deciphered in the 19th century. But it really wasn't until well into the 20th century that it was finally deciphered. So we have this intimate look inside the family of Chinggis Khan, sometimes even giving conversations between. Uh, Chinggis Khan and, and Bursta in bed because they're living in a gear and the other people can hear. And she's oh. fussing at him about it. So it's a very intimate history, and that's one reason it was secret. And uh, today we have this look at his life that we wouldn't have for someone such as Caesar or Alexander the Great or, or anyone like that. Fascinating. Fascinating. So as you are going through these documents, um, it says in the intro to your book, I found really interesting how it was describing like, and to his sons, you know, to this son, he left this, and to this son, he left this, and to this son, he left this, and to his daughters, and nothing. <laughs> that, it was, that it was actually excised purposefully. Yes, now, the numbers of... Um the sections of the secret history were numbered. So we have those numbers and you're reading along and you get to sections uh, 210 and 211 and 12, exactly what you're saying about the sons. And then it switches towards giving this story, which is there, about how his youngest son, Tolu, 
was kidnapped by a Tatar. And there was an argument as to who saved him, the two men who came after and, and uh, actually took the child away. But Chinggis Khan told them, but this girl, Altani, who is considered a daughter to Chinggis Khan, I don't know exactly what that meant. I, she was living with his mother, and maybe she was an adopted daughter, or maybe she was a clan daughter, or maybe the real daughter, I don't know. But this young mm. girl, Altani, she's the one who ran out, and when this Tatar man had the child and had a knife, she grabbed his arm with the knife, and she held the knife down so that he couldn't harm the child until the two men arrived. And Chinggis Khan says, she's the one who saved the child. She's the one. Right. So he's very clear. And he's just told us this story about this heroic girl, Altani, and he rewards her. And that's the end of section 214. And then we get to 215, and there's not even a full sentence. It's just a clause of, and now we reward our daughters. Nothing. Nothing. It's all wow. missing. Every word is gone. And it's, and I say, sometimes people translate that, and now we give our daughters in marriage. That is not there at all. It's now we reward uh. our daughters. And so that, I first just read through it and didn't think too much about it. But over time, it just bothered me more and more because they were such an important part of the story and I didn't have access to that, and and I, I couldn't figure right. it out. And so then I tried to start piecing it together based on everything else I could find. Were there people you met who who gave you bits of maybe folk information or cultural uh, stuff that had been passed down that had helped you with that, help you find your way to the stories of these women? About these specific women, the specific ones, the daughters of Chinggis Khan, uh, and, uh, no. Unfortunately, they were so thoroughly erased that mostly their names were not known by their country. You have to remember that these daughters were sent away from Mongolia. They went to rule other people, such as the Oirat and the uh, Ongut and uh, these different groups along the Silk Route. So they were not living among the Mongols, and then their descendants were not there. So their their stories were lost. We're completely gone. Well, we definitely, let's definitely revive and, and share their names, their stories a little bit uh, as we go on. But so how did you begin to piece it together? Well, one of the first things is all of these sons-in-law are serving with Genghis Khan, and they're usually called... Uh, by the word for son-in-law. So I started identifying the sons-in-law as a way to figure out how many daughters there were and where they were married. And then you slowly begin to find other little traces. Also, since they're living on the border areas, that's a disadvantage from the secret history perspective because they're not being included in that. But you begin to find that on the border areas, then the people started remarking about them also. Like I mentioned already, the envoys from the South Song dynasty writing about Altani, we learned from her. And so we can learn some facts from these other. Uh, problem is often they refer to her either by name or by title or by something. And that it was piecing that together and figuring out who was who. And there are cases where 
I I couldn't include information because I wasn't sure about the matchup of the names and the issues. So it was a puzzle that I only put together in a in a very sort of vague temporary way in the hope that in due time uh, other people will be able to do a much better job with other pieces of this puzzle. Right, and you'll be able to bring in hopefully um, chronicles from other countries, and as you say, you know they were sent away to uh, to administer and rule different regions of his kingdom. And so hopefully, you know, as you mentioned, like the Chinese chroniclers, the Persian chroniclers, all of those people that that stories about these uh, daughters will be found from other sources. Fingers crossed. Yes, I hope so. Now, one one problem with that is uh, after the first generation of women rulers, the daughters, then the grandsons gradually began taking over those territories. So in the case of, uh, well, um, Altanibek, for example, and the Ongut people, uh, Hublai Khan, Kublai Khan, he ended up taking over that territory. And then they just kind of erased her out of the history as though they, uh, so Kublai Khan's family had always been ruling that part. She just was no longer <laughs> relevant. I don't know that she was necessarily had to be censored so much as just irrelevant to their story anymore. So a lot of it was lost. And I will say in some cases, the Persian chroniclers, whom I respect so terribly much, they sometimes are are not very informative about these women. Right. Yeah. And yet it was, in so many ways, it was the women that... You know, it, it seems like there was this pattern where where Genghis Khan would go out and, and conquer a new territory, and then he'd hand it over to, you know, one of his daughters or his daughters-in-law or something and say, okay, you've got to hold this, you know, that, that the shields to defend the empire, right, that, that I conquered it, now it's up to you to keep it together and to keep it working, and that, you know, they, the, the, the women queens, the the Mongol queens, were the ones that essentially cemented the the ability of the empire to stay together, to to work together, to interlock their their um, you know the goods that they created and the skills that they had and the resources from those particular regions. That it was the daughters that that kind of developed the systems that kept the empire working and so that it didn't all, you know, just like Genghis Khan would run through an area, conquer it, and then leave and go conquer another area. And then in the aftermath, you know, without those daughters, everything would have just collapsed again. So it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's fascinating that, that with with the incredible contribution that they had to essentially Genghis Khan being remembered today, that um, that their parts of the story have been deliberately removed. Yes, they 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 are the ones who put it together in the commercial sense, 
And if we think about this empire, we think about the conquest, and that was men, yes, mostly men, sometimes women, but mostly men out there, and they were doing the conquest. But 100,000 men cannot rule an empire. And when you right. have hundreds, when you have millions and hundreds of millions of people, and they're out there always fighting and conquering. They're not administering. And it was the daughters, especially, as I say, sort of strung along the silk route, if you can kind of visualize that, in a series of, of kingdoms. They were putting together the commercial structure because in the end, it's the commercial structure that held it together. The, the conquest is a very quick event, but the fact that people are willing to stay a part of the empire means they've got to be getting some kind of benefit from it. You cannot force hundreds of millions of people into an empire with only 100,000 soldiers. They're getting a benefit. Well, the benefit was commercial. The trade was increased. Uh, life was getting better in many, many ways after the conquest, and that was the task of Chinggis Khan's daughters. Jack, one of the things that, uh, ever since reading the Mongol Queens, and I've wondered because it's, it's pertinent to what we're talking about now. So the daughters cement the the the, the structure of this empire. Their stories are erased. The Great Khan honors his daughters and honors many of the female members of his family. It seems like once he passes, when you get to the next generation, when you when you basically get to is it Ogade? Um, so when you get to Ogade, you get this. It's almost as if this uh, once once Genghis Khan passes. Now it's the, many of the men feel like okay, now it's time to get rid of these women or push them aside, and then sometimes really brutally. What was the? Why did that occur? Why did not? Why why didn't uh, Genghis Khan's mindset, sensibility, philosophy spread more easily to his to the men in his empire. And that quite that may not be something easy to answer, but what what was it that happened? Why was there such a backlash to it uh, um, once he passes? And then I want to lead us to talking about his the 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 cartoons, the granddaughters, um, oh, as the empire expands. But what was the reason? I mean, am I characterizing that correctly? Because that's what I that really stuck out for me in reading your your book. This this flip once Genghis Khan passes from women being esteemed and elevated to women being pushed aside. Okay, this each generation of women had a completely different history. I mean, you're right, but. The daughters, so we've just discussed sort of how he put it together in his own lifetime, but then power shifted very much towards the daughters-in-law in the next generation. Remember, I said that he had he had married each of his daughters to very smart women. He was uh, he had arranged that for them to have smart wives, and so there's a big change. And I think that part of the loss of power of his own daughters was to some extent also a fault in the system itself because this business of the men, the husbands going off to fight all the time, and then the wife or the daughter of Chinggis Khan having to go through so many different husbands, they did not have many children, most of them. And in some cases, such as Alakai Bek, her own children were, her own sons died in war. And so she mm -hmm. had... Uh, taken all of the, the children of her husbands, 
the different husbands, other wives as her own. And she tried to make good marriages for them. And uh, she did everything she could for them. But she had no real heirs. And so part of the problem for many of these women, only one woman, one of the daughters named Chechigan, who had married the Oirat Khan, who was the head of the Oirat people, she was the only one who had a large number of children to survive. So this was a, a... a problem in the system itself, aside from any kind of discrimination or what, that was already problematic. So what happened in the second generation? So then Ogude comes to power. This is his son. Chinggis Khan is gone. The daughters, some are still alive and and doing what they were doing before. And uh, none of the daughters have been harmed to our knowledge. So that that part was good. But then Ogude comes to power. And he has an exceptional wife. She was not his first wife, but she was the most powerful, and her name is Dorjin. And Dorjin really began to organize the empire. Now, these daughters of Chinggis Khan, remember, had each a little kingdom, so Ongut kingdom, for example, or the Oirat, whom we had, had mentioned. This was a, a smaller area, but now we have a great queen, Dorjin, who is the queen with her husband, Okote, of the largest empire in the world. Because by this time, it stepped, you know, stretched from Korea to Hungary all the way. And in Okote's where, where was this? Years, where was she from? Is she, was she also of his tribe? Sorry, just, a, just a curious. Was she also, uh, was she married from a different tribe? Or where was she from? Well, she was from one of the tribes of Mon- what's now Mongolia. But at that at that mm-hmm. time, she was from the tribe called the Naiman people, and she had been, they had been conquered, but she had been uh, actually uh, captured because she was married to a merkit. Uh, and so when the merkit were conquered, she was then captured and somehow uh, ended up as Ogude's wife. Exactly mm-hmm. how, but um, all the steps involved are not clear. But she came from the Naiman by way of the Merkit people. But today, all those right. are included within Mongolia. Mm-hmm. She was also, it seems that she was literate, although we don't have an exact uh, a report of her reading and writing, but she sponsored the printing of many books and the engraving of uh, many books into, into stone and temples in China, for example. So she, she sponsored a lot of scholarship. And so I think there's reason to assume that she was a fairly educated person. She was extremely talented, that's for sure. She was running the empire in the final years of a good day's life because he was drinking a lot and he was just out of commission. And she was issuing the orders in her own name. So it's not as though this is behind the scenes or somebody behind a curtain pulling strings on a puppet. No, she was openly administering the country. So when he died, the family, even though she's married into the family, she's an in-law, the family uh, chose her to be the regent to run the empire until they came up with the new one. And that was for five years. So for five more years, she ran the empire. Now, all of us make mistakes, and I think her mistake was that she favored a worthless son. She had a couple of sons, and why she chose this one, I don't know. And so it took her five years to kind of arrange for his uh, ascension 
to be elected as great Khan. And unfortunately, uh, I think he, he did a terrible job in his short 18 months. But this is where we get to the point of what you were saying about when they turned against the women. And that was the, the grandchildren, the grandsons of Chinggis Khan. Uh, in this okay. case, Dorajan's own son turned against her after all she had done for him. His name was uh, Guik. And Guik, uh, he, he despised his mother's main minister. It was, she had a female minister named uh, Fatima. Fatima had been taken from Uzbekistan at some point. Uh, exactly how is uh, different stories, we don't know. But she rose to power with uh, Empress Dorogen, and she was the main minister. And he wanted her removed. And Dorogen was still alive, and Dorogen was still powerful, although she was no longer the, the empress. The, uh, I mean, she was still the, uh, sort of like the empress dowager, but she was no longer the regent empress. And Guik demanded that he, uh, that she turn over Fatima to him. She refused. It became a great feud in the family. Uh, but finally, he was able to capture her and put her on trial for supposedly having used magical powers and all, all kinds of excuses. And she was horribly treated. Mongols in the time of Chinggis Khan did not allow torture, but he found ways to have her beaten and tortured uh, in horrific ways before finally killing her. And somewhere in this process, his mother, Dorijan, also died. We don't know exactly the sequence of what happened. We just know that it was a horrific sort of purge that he did. Yeah. Good heavens. So what did that, that lead to? Does that, from that period, that leads to that period you talk about with the, the granddaughters-in-law, I guess, right? Uh, yes, because uh, Greek only ruled, as I said, for 18 months. His, his death also suspicious, but uh, I'm thankful for it. You know, and, he, but, and his wife then took over. Her name was Okal Hamish. She took over as, as the empress uh, regent to rule over the empire. Unfortunately, she was not nearly as capable as, as Dorjan had been. And at this point, then we have a, a real struggle actually between two of the granddaughters-in-law of Chinggis Khan. So Ogol Hamish is the great queen, but we have another one who is named Sorktani Beki, and she she is the mother of, of uh, Kublai Khan and Mokhan, some other of the Khans. And she is ruling northern China at this time. She had been married to Chinggis Khan's youngest son, who was the first to die. And she had been in power there for a very long time and had prepared four sons for very important roles to rule. And she arranged to have her son, her eldest son, Mokhan, made the great Khan. So it was kind of a struggle between the two daughters-in-law. And Sorghtani was certainly the most qualified, and she won, and uh, Okal Hamish was removed, and that whole line was removed from power. The, the descendants of Ogudehan were removed from power. So this mm. struggle between them at first, there was no violence at first, 
But as soon as Mong Han came to power, then he began the great purge, never against his mother, but unfortunately she died within the year of his coming to power, but against uh, many other people, male and female. And in the process, he removed many of the females who were in office. Not everyone. In a few cases, he kept them on as his own allies. But this was the turning point that these granddaughters-in-law were being stripped of power for the most part. Mm-hmm. Got it. So just so I didn't misinterpret that, so it really wasn't about uh, a, a women per se. This was just a purge. This was a political purge, not a change in sensibility such that the men were saying, no, no, no longer can women be in these roles. This was just a general kind of uh, uh, regime change. Would that be correct? Or or was it specifically well, I think it, specific? It was certainly political, and some women were retained, and even uh, some women were uh, had their offices increased or their power increased. So it wasn't ideological against women, but in a certain way, I think women were a weaker link in that they, they lacked the resources often that the men had. So in the long run, uh, they're going to continue to lose power, but they did not lose mm-hmm. all power in that third generation. By the fourth okay. generation, they were pretty much out of power and all of the settled parts. In the, in the Mongol parts, in the nomadic parts, they still retain some power. But in all of the cities and the settled parts, by the fourth generation, they had lost power. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Sogatani Becky, because uh, she seems like she's pretty awesome. Um, and I know, Sean, she's one of your favorites. She is. I, I just I just got that from from Jack's book. She just seemed like a fascinating, uh, just a fascinating person. Uh, so, what's her story? What's her background? Uh, and what were her her gifts? What made her so uh, vital and uh, formidable? Okay, if you remember, uh, there's we were talking a little bit before about uh, when uh, Chinggis Khan was married to Becca. The, the daughter or the um, queen that he had to put away, as they say, that he had to divorce her in public. Right. Well, right. Soraktani was her sister. And so when Chinggis Khan had married the, the one sister, the other sister was married to his youngest daughter, Talon, who was, I mean, sorry, to his youngest son. son. I'm getting myself yeah. confused. I apologize. <laughs> to his youngest son, Talon. And so, uh, she had shown great power and great intellect in raising her sons without her husband, who was also, unfortunately, a a very strong drinker, and he died early in life from that. But she ruled over her territory. And this is in the time back of Agude Han, and Agude Han actually wanted to marry her to his son, uh, to his own son because she was such a dynamic woman and she had refused because she said, no, I have to take care of my own sons. I, I can't come and marry your son. So she raised her four sons to take over power and they did. She became quite a force. Uh, after uh, Mung Han came to power, then she was gone from the scene and her four sons 
unfortunately did not maintain the same unity that they had had while she was alive. But she had trained them well for the most part. Kubla Khan owes most of his success in life, I think, to the training he received from his mother, Sorakhtani. She arranged for him to have Chinese training as well as Mongolian and Buddhist and Confucian, everything. Wow. Uh, she just, again, it just seemed like she really had this incredible understanding, but, that, but all of that generation. And you had pointed out in the book that they had come from some had been Christian, they'd come from various backgrounds, uh, which I think is really fascinating and says a lot about the Mongol Empire that it was this kind of diverse array of different groups. So, what what was it about that that generation of granddaughters and law? Can you tell us a little bit about the variety of you know women that were there, the tribes they were from, their backgrounds, just kind of just as a, a as a sense of just how much the empire had become very much integrated because I, I get that from the making of the modern world book too, that, that Genghis Khan was very much about integrating these different cultures into his, into his world. He wanted to integrate his empire, but he also wanted to keep a very strong Mongol identity. So none of the, the daughters and the sons uh, within his own lineage, his own uh, flesh and blood uh, none of them ever deviated from sort of the Mongol tradition and the Mongol religion. That was very important to them. However, as I mentioned, he had married each of his sons to at least one Christian woman. And in this case, Sorokhtani came from a Christian family. But we have to think of Christianity on the step in a totally different way. This is yeah. a kind of Christianity that's a, a nomadic mobile people living in tents. Uh, they do not have churches. They, they do not have shrines. Uh, they do, of course, they obviously they don't grow bread, so they can't make communion with uh, bread. They have to use uh, milk and dairy products to have communion. It's a much different form of Christianity, and often it's just lumped together as Nestorian, the kind of Eastern Asian version of Christianity. And to some extent, they were influenced by Nestorian Christianity, but they were their own brand. Uh, for example, they were fairly much against icons. Even the worship of the crucifix was not allowed. It, no images were allowed of any kind of suffering of Jesus. Jesus was held up as a great healer. That was the primary thing about him. And uh, there's a much different form of Christianity, but Sorakhtani came from this. And there's a very tolerant version. The Mongols themselves are very tolerant. Chinggis Khan was very tolerant of all religions. He felt like that every religion was some way to God. As his grandson Mokhan said, the different religions of people are like the different fingers of God. Which one do you want to cut off? And this is, uh, she was, uh, Sorakhtani had trained him, of course. And so mm -hmm. she was very open. She supported uh, Buddhists. She supported Muslims. She supported Confucian scholars, all of them. And uh, yet she herself was, Fat was, was Fatima, Christian. Sorry? Was Fatima, I guess, Muslim probably? Uh, her her uh, minister, the minister she was so uh, connected to? 
Oh, no, oh, 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 Fatima, the minister to... Uh, oh, Torjan. Torjan. Yes, Torjan yeah, also been, been a Christian, and her main minister, we would assume, was a Muslim because of her name From the and name. her origin. Exactly. But it's never stated specifically. So is this Nestorian Christianity, is, is it still existent on the step, is, or is it, has it that just simply vanished over, over time? Uh, the step version vanished. Uh, Nestorians uh, really were based primarily in Iraq and in Persia, in that area. Mm-hmm. There are a few left there. Uh, there are a fair number who migrated to the U.S., and uh, the descendants of the Nestorians are, are, are in the U.S., many of them as uh, Arab Christians. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they have also joined with the Catholic Church. They have reunited with them, sometimes made independent. And so just small traces of them have continued. But that's an urban version. That's not the nomadic version. The nomadic version was lost. Right. Hmm. So, Sean, you mentioned a Siberian Boudicca. And I know oh, that Boudicca yeah, yeah. is one of one of your favorite figures in history. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about the Siberian Boudicca. What was her name? What did she do? And why do you love her? Well, I just wanted to ask Jack about that. That actually is outside of the Mongol Queen book, Jack. It's the story I remember from uh, Making of the Modern World where... Uh, I believe it's Genghis. I don't think it was his sons who had gone into Siberia to conquer. And there was a great uh, leader of one of the tribes in Siberia, a woman who raised her army and had, I think, initially defeated the Mongols in battle. Am I, did I just dream that or did that, (laughs) do do you remember the story I'm talking about? No, that happened. (laughs) Um, The first time he sent the army north, uh, into yeah into Siberia, they were defeated by this queen, and then he had to send in another army. And the second time, though, she was defeated. But the first time, she defeated them. Yes. What was her What was her name? And what was What was the tribe? Where are the tribe from? Was this just a a wild uh, a tribe a nomadic tribe out in the wilds of Siberia? Do we know much about her? Do we know anything more than just this one story? No, we really do not know too much about her. Uh, it was assumed that her hut, that uh, she was the widow of a Khan who had ruled, but that's just an assumption out there. And these are people in Siberia who were then incorporated in into the other group we call the Oirat people. So eventually okay. they became, a, I mean, Oirat just means people of the forest, but and eventually it became a specific ethnic group. And so this is a part of the Oirat people. This is the origin of Oirat. And then Chinggis Khan, in his own case, he uh, married her. Uh, I'm sorry. He married the, the woman whom they had conquered to one of his generals, but he gave his own daughter, Chechigan eventually to rule that area. So she was ruling over the Oirat in time. So there was a strong female tradition there. And I mentioned before that of all the daughters, Chechigan was the most successful in having descendants. So I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that they already had a, a tradition up there of people like her. It's hard to say exactly what the factors are, but it's interesting system. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. 
There's also the story of Kutalun that I just wanted us to touch on that uh, is, uh, seems to be uh, a beloved tale uh, for Mongolians in, in Mongolia. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about her? Oh, well, this is a special favorite of mine. But uh, she was also cut out of the history for various reasons. But fortunately, we had both the report of the Persian chroniclers and the report of Marco Polo. So we had a couple different versions of her life. But she was a descendant from Han, And so they were still living a more traditional life uh, in the middle of Eurasia, around now what is Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan in that area. They were living there and they resisted the rule of Kublai Khan and this uh, more sedentary, very different kind of Mongol empire that he was creating. Her father was named Haidu Han. Haidu Han resisted. And Hotelung fought with her father uh, against the troops of Kublai Khan. Neither side ever defeated the other. But her story that was so interesting was that she was a great wrestler. And uh, uh, in the process of doing all these wrestling and winning these championships, uh, it was said, according to the story that was made about her, how much is true, you never quite know. I certainly think she was a great wrestler. But it was said that she would only marry the man who could defeat her in wrestling. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, unfortunately for those men, uh, they could not. But every man had to make a wager. If he wanted to wrestle against her, he had to wager horses. And so she amassed this vast number of horses from all of these. And that made her more desirable, of course, as a wife, because she owned so many horses, but it also made it more formidable. Eventually, she did marry, and it's a little question. Uh, one version said that, uh, you know, she she had agreed to throw the wrestle match, to, to actually surrender and, and to lose. But then when she got into the match, she couldn't do it. She had to win, and she did. So, um, there were little problems along the way, but she did eventually marry. And uh, she had a husband, but she continued to fight by her father. And it, it said, again, I can't vouch for every word, but these are written chronicles. And it said that she had this favorite sort of ploy of she would race out in the battle from beside her father and capture one man who would sometimes be quite stunned to be captured by a woman and bring him back to, to her father alive as a captive. But she had this little routine that she was doing. So she struck a lot of terror into a lot of people's hearts. And her, as long as she was alive and her father was alive, they were never conquered. They maintained really the Mongol way of life out there, the, the step way against the civilized people, the Mongols who were becoming more Chinese or becoming more Muslim, and they were the old traditional Mongols. It's a Hutalung, she was quite something special, but her story doesn't end with her. What's so interesting to me is I said, you know, Marco Polo wrote it up, and then later, uh, Another, Marco Polo, of course, was from Venice, and another Venetian writer then came along and made it into a play. 
And then the play became somewhat popular in Europe, but they had to change the story. The wrestling part just didn't do well. So in this European version of this uh, this queen from Asia or this princess rather from Asia, this princess in that version, she asks questions and riddles to the men and they have to outsmart her and they're having trouble doing it. So it was a different version, but then that was made into an opera, Turando, Turando. There we go. From Puccini. And of course, it's a a great and beautiful opera. What people don't realize that Turando, which Turando means the daughter of the Turk. That's, I mean, the literal name of it, the daughter of the Turk. And of course, Mongols were often also often called Turks. But he was the Khan of China. So it was very clear that the story was based on her in every way. But instead of being a wrestling queen, of course, she's the one who asks the questions and has these riddles. And it's a beautiful, beautiful opera, but it uh, obscures as much as it reveals about the life of these great Mongol queens. Well, as has one of the great, great, works of music of all time and Nessun Dorma, the great aria Nessun yes. Dorma, which is no, so right. wonderful. No one sleeps tonight, yes. Yeah. Oh That's well this is this has been wonderful, Jack. Is there Dawn, is there anything you want to Um I just one of the things that really struck me um about uh, in your book, Jack, was was that moment uh I mentioned it at the beginning of our talk of where um Genghis Khan had had lost everything and was at this muddy lake and uh he had he had traditionally you had said that he had traditionally fled to the mountains which were considered male in Mongol culture when he was in trouble but because it, the mountains weren't safe he had fled to this this lake area and and water was considered female it was considered the blood of the mother earth and um because he essentially was saved at this female space that from that time on in his spirituality he always took care to balance sort of the father mountain with the mother water with that these principles of of male the you know the divine masculine and the divine feminine he took conscious care to always balance them um in his in his future spiritual life and in the way that he gave gratitude and um and i thought that was fantastic and uh i also you know just want to make a note that it was when he had this spiritual sort of revelation it was from that time on that he began to uh, ascend um, in his, you know, his uh, conquering and his empire making. So maybe there's a little something to that equal honoring of the feminine and the masculine. Certainly in his case, throughout his whole life, he always honored both. I do think, as you said earlier on in life, uh, he was focused on the mountain. And I cannot say if he was also at that time how conscious he was of, of the, the the female power of the water and all. I don't know because nothing is said, only the mountain. But from the point of the, the Baljun episode, 
Yes, that he always honored both male and female forever. And he called like, you would say, Mother Water and Father Sky or Mother Earth, we would say probably in English. But uh, right. he always honored that. And the waters themselves are a little bit interesting because in Mongolian language, any water that's permanent, like a permanent lake or permanent le- uh, river that doesn't run dry, they're called queens. That's the word, hatun. They're the queens. Uh, to this day, it's exactly that way. Mongolia today has four hatun qu- uh, rivers, four rivers that never run dry. And uh, these waters are not specified if it was queen, hatun, or not. It's just called the waters. And so it leads to a certain kind of mystery about, so we usually say lake in English, uh, and I think that's what it was, but also there was a lot of mud there. So it seems right. like it, it, it's a part of the mystery of him, but you're right. From that point on, at least we know in the record, before that we're a little unclear, but from that point on, he always honored the male and female principle in his religion. That was very important to him, very. That's wonderful. I just love that story. It's beautiful. Jack, is there anything you would want to leave the listener with about these women, the, the history of these Mongol queens and the, the lineage in the Mongol Empire? You know, not, not really about, we've said so much about the past, and uh, I've probably I've got myself in circles sometimes and confused, uh, but I do want to say that, you know, Mongolia today is still a country that more than 800 years after all this happened, they're still there, despite the fact that they're quite small, and women are still very active in Mongol society. And I think there's still a lot of things we can learn from Mongolia. Uh, I hope that your listeners, if they have the opportunity, will visit Mongolia. It's open to all of you. Well, I can't get there now and you can't, but I hope soon we can all get back there. And we hope that you will come. Please come to Mongolia and see for yourself what a strong society it is and how strong the women of Mongolia are today. Because of you, Jack, I do want to go there. It's it's because of reading your works that I've, I've become fascinated with the place. So thank you so much for what you've shared. Well, Sean and Don, I thank you both very much for helping to make Mongolia better known. And I, if I haven't done such a good job, I do encourage people, as I say, to come there, see it for themselves. And I hope you will both come. I hope I'll meet you there. That would be wonderful. Uh, yeah. I would right. love that. <laughs> we will okay. make a we will make a plan sometime in the future. We will meet you in Mongolia when the world opens up. Exactly. We will meet in Mongolia. Yes, I love it. Well, thank you so much, and thank you, Dawn, as always, for sharing me on this journey. Thank you, and, Sean, and thank you all for listening. This has been the thirty fourth Sursi Salam. We've been talking to Jack Weatherford about the women of Mongolia, the Mongol queens. Thank you all so much for listening and take care. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. 